Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil, and I'm very, very excited for our guest today. Before we get into today's guest, again, please review and like our podcast. It really helps. The more reviews that we get on this podcast, the more we're able to get high-quality guests like the ha- like the one that we have today for the show. So please, 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 again, Please leave a review, five-star review, and we're looking forward to get more feedback from you, our audience, which adds value to our show. So today's guest is Ethan Gao. Now, Ethan is a general partner in multiple commercial real estate and multifamily projects totaling 2,000 units. He has made over 400 private loans secured by real estate, both single-family and commercial real estate. His primary role on deals is a gap funder to fill the gap on equity required for transactions. And so Ethan has a lot of experience and has invested in hotels, self-storage, office buildings, medical offices, and retail. And Ethan graduated from Cornell University with a BA in economics in 2003 at the age of 19. From Columbia Law School in 2006 at the age of 22. And he has worked on billion-dollar mergers and acquisitions for several years on Wall Street in financial institutions before transitioning to becoming a professional investor and entrepreneur in 2016. So, Ethan, thanks so much for being a guest on our show today. No, thanks for having me, Yannick. So give our listeners a little bit, you know, backstory on, like, who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a poor immigrant household. Uh, we moved to the U.S. in 1990 from China. Uh, I grew up in Waco, Texas. I started in English as a second language. I didn't speak English when I moved here. Um, and then uh, I ended up uh, moving to uh, Ohio when I was in junior high and high school. And then after that, I went to college when I was 16. I met my wife the first day of class at Cornell. So we've been together for 23 years. We've got five kids together. Some of you have, may have seen my fourth kid come over during this podcast, and then I told her to leave. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. And I know this, but the audience may not know this, but you have a family office, right? I do. I started that about a year ago. So basically what what changed was um, I started having professional management. So it's not just myself doing all of the activities. I'm still extremely involved, but I have two junior partners slash junior guys that do a lot of analysis and other types of work for me. So that's what kind of changed, you know, for, to me, having a family office is not about a specific amount of money that you have. It's more about, do you have people that work for, in it and work on it that are not actually members of your family. So there's very large, you know, places where they have tons of money, but everybody's got the same last name. So that's kind of a family office, but I I view family office as more professional management than specific net worth or ability to place money. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think when I thought that I heard of family offices, you usually hear like, you know, 
10 million plus, you know, deals or, or nothing, right? <laughs> they look at large transactions. They have hundreds of thousands and millions of money of dollars in, in their bank account ready to deploy. But it's different to hear that there's not necessarily like a capital requirement to, you know, start a, a family office. Yeah, no, I know. You know, I, I don't know if my definition is correct or not, but I view family office as professional management. That's not the actual family. So until you've graduated to having a management layer, to me, that's not really a family office. That's just, it's literally your family and it's your office. But I don't view that as necessarily an actual family office per se. You could have a billion dollars, but if it's just you running the shop and maybe your son or your daughter, uh, I just think that's different versus having a professional class that is not related to you. Makes sense. So what got you started in real estate? Was there like a first transaction in the commercial real estate space? Or I know that you have a ton of experience in the hotels, you know, multifamily, just commercial real estate in general. You know, what got you started in the space? Yeah, absolutely. So here's kind of my origin story. So I had saved several million dollars from my job as a fancy corporate attorney and from my wife's job as being an investment banker and private equity. And she was a junior to mid-level person at a couple of different private equity shops before uh, we ended up having uh, five kids. And, you know, she basically uh, exited the workforce more or less um, when we had our first kid. And so um, what got me into real estate was about seven, eight years ago, I was really interested in quitting my corporate job. I always, you know, I, I know I've made this show to you before. I viewed um, being working at a high end corporate law firm to be essentially choosing to play in the SEC. So if your goal is to make money or to win a championship, I'm not exactly sure if you should choose to play against Alabama and Georgia every day. So that's what it felt like, just getting your face kicked in every day. The competition was stiff. You know, Nick Saban will walk over and say, you're not trying hard enough. It, it was just a hard environment to really do well in. So I was like, there's got to be something easier. Like, can I go play in the community college league or maybe like I need to play ping pong instead of football or something like maybe I need to pick something easier to play with. So um, that's when I started doing research on other things I could do with my life. One tree was franchising. So I looked at a variety of different franchises. And then one of the other big trees was real estate investing. So I did a ton of interviews with franchise consultants. I went to a franchise fair. I did a bunch of extensive research. And basically, most of the franchises I looked at were essentially um, paying your own money to them by yourself, kind of a crappy job. So I was like, man, I already have a crappy job. Like, why do I need to go buy one? So I basically deleted franchising from the repertoire. And so I looked into real estate a lot more. And really, I, I listened to, you know, Bigger Pockets podcasts, just read a ton of articles about real estate investing. And what I determined was for somebody like me that was a you know sophisticated lawyer and who had millions of dollars already, what I should do is be a private lender. So I started lending money to people that were fixing and flipping houses in the Houston, Texas area. And I just charged them a really high interest rate. And I did a bunch of that. And then I eventually did well enough doing that and made enough income that I quit my corporate gig about seven years ago. Wow, that's amazing. My significant other is an attorney as well. And, and I can totally see where the pain points come from a working hard perspective, you know, just working, grinding every single day, trying to compete with, you know, all the other big firms. So I can totally understand that. It is a very hard life. And then, um, 
one of the other things about it is um, unless just a lot of things fall in your favor, generally it, it's actually, it gets harder as you progress. So, um, you know, generally people like to do things that as they get older and, uh, you know, they want to work less. However, in a lot of corporate legal gigs, making partner or, you know, getting promoted is actually just the first step in you working even harder and having Nick Saban at your house. Like he's at your <laughs> practice and he's at your house and he's like, you're not eating dinner fast enough. That's hilarious. So true. Okay. So you, you were in the corporate space, you transitioned out of that and now you're a key principal. Give our audience, you know, some context about like what a key principal is and maybe share some details on what you look for as a key principal when, when looking at an operator on a real estate transaction. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so just to back up a little bit on my story. So when I quit my corporate gig, um, I decided to spend a lot more time on real estate and, and specifically hard money lending. I also became a uh, licensed uh, life insurance salesman. So I bought my first life insurance policy about nine years ago, but I've been pitched life insurance since I was 22 years old in 2006. I've had like 20, 30 different people pitch it to me. And I actually liked it back then, but I didn't buy it because I didn't have a kid. So for me, the death benefit was meaningless. So I just never bought it, even though I loved the concept. So once I had my first kid, then I ended up buying it. And then um, when I quit my corporate job, my financial advisor who had sold me that life insurance policy basically told me that I should come work for him and also become a licensed uh, life insurance salesman. So I've been doing that for seven years as well. Uh, Most of my clients tend to be attorneys and real estate investors because that's the pools that I hang out with a lot. So back to kind of my original story. So once I quit my corporate gig, I started practicing law by myself. I was doing the life insurance sales and I was doing real estate investments. And then one day, about three years ago, one of my friends just sat me down. We had a lunch. It was casual. He just asked me, hey, Ethan, I know you have millions of dollars in your life insurance policies, so you're pretty liquid. Have you ever thought about being a key principal or a loan guarantor? And he explained it to me, and my, my immediate reaction was shut the front door. You are literally telling me that because I'm already rich, that I can sign on a loan and then I can get paid. Like you're paying me to be rich. I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly why we moved to the America in 1989. This is what we were born to do, to come here and, uh, you know, sign on people's stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of over-exaggerating it slightly. So what being a key principal, a loan guarantor is, you know, I'll just give you the fact pattern for how it arises. So as you know, Yannick, but maybe some of the folks on the um, listening to this may not know, let's just give an example. Let's say we're buying a $25 million apartment building. Um, generally, what that means is we can borrow about $15 million from a lender, you know, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, maybe Arbor Trust, uh, a REIT or, you know, Nationwide Bank, something like that. The lender's requirements will be as follows. They'll require that the lead sponsors have net worth that exceeds the loan amount. So in that case, you and I would have to have net worth that exceeds $15 million. That's the loan that we're getting. So in that case, let's say you and I had net worth that was $14.99. We do not qualify. We have to go find someone else to add to our team to satisfy that net worth requirement. So now... Uh, let's say you and I have 15.01 million of net worth. That's great. The lender is also going to require that we have 10% of that liquid. Um, sometimes they'll add, you know, a years of interest payments. 
uh, on top of that or in lieu of that. But, um, you know, they're not super interested in lending people uh, $15 million if their net worth is 15.01 and they have $5 in their checking account, which is actually, I see that quite a lot with real estate investors. Real estate investors tend to love real estate so much that they have very little actual liquidity. So in that case, even though you and I met the net worth requirement, we might not meet the liquidity requirement. We might only have $1.49 million. So now we have to bring on another person onto our team. And then another thing to point out is if you and I do meet the net worth requirement and we meet the liquidity requirement, we may not meet the experience requirement. We may not have multifamily experience. That might be our first deal. We might not be approved. So we will also have to bring on somebody with the actual experience. So now at this point in my career of doing it for a couple of years, so you know now I meet liquidity requirements for people, I meet net worth requirements for people, and I can meet experience requirements for people. And sometimes I might have to meet all three, though that's going to be relatively rare. It's not super common that I would you know want to partner with uh, people doing their first deal. It, it does happen. It's just not super common. Thank you so much for that breakdown. That was that was really, really good. One of the things with the key principle that I think our audience really needs to pay attention to is like you said, right? If you're going up for a, you know, a Freddie Mac loan, typically Freddie Mac loans on a small balance side, they don't require, you know, experience, but they require experience maybe from a commercial real estate perspective, right? Yep. Versus Fannie Mae is a little bit more challenging, right? So the, the point that I'm trying to, to give is that you know, Freddie Mac is a little bit more easier to deal with than a Fannie Mae because Fannie Mae, you know, they require a little bit more experience on, on for example, the commercial real estate side for them to give you that note. But if you have, you know, a key principle like yourself that has been on, you know, loans of similar kind and you have the net worth and the experience, that can literally be the gap between you closing on the transaction just because you know someone that has that experience. And then also, these deals are non-recourse, right? So, you know, it's not a personal guarantee to your KP, only if there is some sort of fraud or, you know, it's called a bad boy carve out on the property, which I think is, you know, great when you're trying to put together larger real estate transactions. Yeah, absolutely. So with the bad boy carve outs, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So a non-recourse personal guarantee is still an actual personal guarantee, but it's not triggered or deficiencies are not triggered unless there was some sort of action on behalf of the team or the key principal, which is primarily fraud. So most times people call it a bad boy carve out, but it really covers a lack of compliance in multiple other areas, like not renewing insurance is one of them, you know, not, not just literally not being so negligent that you don't have property casualty insurance uh, that could trigger it. Non-compliance with financial reporting requirements can also trigger it as well. I signed on one and I think there were like 27 different actions that we could do that would actually make it full recourse. And I remember that is because we went, the loan documents, you know, had A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then I remember it had to go to A, A because it was more than 26. So they had to start over with the numbering. Yeah, yeah. That brings me back to my corporate days as an asset manager, I used to work for a company called Walker and Dunlop. And that was my job to look at bad loans, loans particularly that would fall into the watch list for some of those triggers that you mentioned, the lack of insurance, you know, not paying your property taxes, you know, not meeting certain uh, debt service coverage ratio requirements, all the things that trigger, you know, your lender to kind of 
look at you a little bit closely, you know, since they are um, lending you large amounts of money on those properties. So I appreciate you sharing that detail behind the key principle. So what do you look for when partnering up with operators who are in this space, you know, in the commercial real estate space? Is it experience? Is it the ability for them to have additional funds into the deal? What do you typically look for as a key principle? Yeah. So for me, it's about the jockey. The horse is important, but the jockey is significantly more important. So for me, um, you know, unlike the stock market or certain other investments, past track record is actually a pretty decent predictor of future track record on things, especially if they're very related. So if somebody's done like five deals in Baltimore and they've sold a couple of them, refinanced them, in general, you can feel pretty good that they know what they're talking about with respect to Baltimore, right? And let's say they didn't do Baltimore, but they're entering Baltimore, but they were from, you know, Philadelphia. You know, if they've had some success there, that's probably going to translate reasonably well to Baltimore as well, although there's going to be some, uh, you know, differences here and there. So I look at track record, and then if there's no directly applicable track record, then I look for related track record. And then if they don't have that and they're very new, then I just look at any real estate experience. And then if they don't have that, then I just look at their corporate background or what background they had to see what indications of, you know, past success would be. So, for example, if somebody was like an Eagle Scout and, you know, they served in the Army for 10 years and was honorably discharged or something, I mean, those are generally solid factors. They have advanced education. That's generally a a solid factor in their favor. Not necessarily because it means they're smarter than anybody else, but it means that I'm giving away one of my tips right now. I'm not even charging you guys for it. So I look at advanced education as a proxy for conforming to society standards. So uh, a lot of people will go to college because they had to. Maybe they were playing a sport or their parents forced them to go and they didn't really care. But once you've decided to get a master's degree or a law degree or an MBA or a medical degree, I think I'm pretty confident that you care about conforming to society's standards. Because not only did you, you know, move your ass through college, but then on top of that, you moved your ass through graduate school too. So that means to me that you are unlikely to run some sort of weird Ponzi scheme or fraud because by your initial behavior of wanting to conform, you've already signaled that you're generally more reasonable and less likely to commit weird frauds. Now, there's going to be some big deviations from this, right? You know, Sam Bankman-Fried went to MIT, which is a great college, and he looks really smart, but, you know, he decided to run a fraud. There was... uh, the Elizabeth Holmes, I think, from uh, Houston. She went to Stanford. But I, I guess I will say, you know, they never got graduate degrees. So they stopped at fancy colleges only. <laughs> no, that's a really, really good uh, insight there. And I think that's really, really um, high level, the way that you broke that down. And I can see definitely how that correlates, because I think just the innate desire to go through, you know, that secondary level of education, I think, is one thing. But really, really good stuff there. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. 
If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. So I know that you also do some gap funding for investors, which can provide a lot, a lot of value for people who are in commercial real estate, trying to close transactions, trying to get over the hump. Can you share a little bit about the gap funding side that you can provide to investors who are trying to close transactions in challenging environments where they're not able to raise the capital in a short committed time? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great uh, question. So let's go back to our earlier example where we talked about us buying a $25 million apartment building. So in that specific instance, we're going to borrow $15 million from Freddie Mac or some lender. We have to raise $10 million from our friends, family, you know, coworkers, et cetera, et cetera. So in situations like that, let's just say you and I were only able to raise $7 million. It could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe the lawyer we used was super slow on the PPM. These are all real life examples of people I've talked to. So sometimes the lawyer is really slow at generating the paperwork. And side note, I have a referral to anybody that has a attorney that, that has that issue. I have a guy that's really, really good at what he does. Number two, I've heard of investors backing out, especially 1031 investors. They seem to back out quite a lot because usually they're identifying like 40 properties that they can invest in. And that necessarily, by the mathematics, uh, means that they have to tell 39 properties that they're not interested anymore, right? So um, I've seen that situation where uh, investor committed up front that they were going to be a large investor. And then at the last minute or close to the last minute, they change their mind or something happens with their 1031 or God knows what. In situations like that, let's just say you and I had raised like 7 million bucks and we can't get an extension from the seller. We've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of earnest money at risk. You know, we don't want to return $7 million back to our investors. We don't want to look like a moron to our lender or to our broker. You know, our broker might tell us, well, hey, you guys will never buy anything in Baltimore again because you guys are terrible at what you do, right? Let's say we didn't want any of that stuff. So we'll find Ethan Gao and we'll say, hey, man, can we borrow $3 million? We need that to close the deal. And then we will pay you back by raising additional money post-closing. And now we'll pitch it to our investors in the following way. We have no more execution risk. Uh, A lot of times when investors put their money in, they're putting in their money one month, two months, two weeks, three weeks ahead of the closing day, and then closing gets extended. You don't generally return the money to your investors and say, oh, yeah, hey, we've extended closing for a month. Here's your million dollars back. Can you just please wire it back in two weeks later? You're not usually doing any of that. So you've got a lot of investors that have experience in the past with other sponsors or, you know, where a deal doesn't go through for whatever reason and they get their money back, but they parked it for several months and they made no return and they had to pay for the wiring fee when they wired you the money and they had to pay a wiring fee when you wired it back and they've really gotten nothing out of it. So now you can pitch your investors and say, hey, we don't have closing risk. We already closed. We closed with Ethan Gow's money. No more execution risk on that front, right? Put in your money. You start accruing returns day one. K1 is going to get done. We already closed. So now you can pitch it that way and uh, get investors to invest. So what really I'm doing is I'm helping people resurrect their deals from the dead 
and giving them additional time to complete their fundraise. Now, I don't do that for free, so I charge a large fee for that. But in instances where there's you know hundreds of thousands or significant earnest money at risk, or there's significant reputational damage, or the deal is just a really good deal, um, it makes sense to pay someone like me to help you solve that problem. Absolutely. I think that's a phenomenal option for investors who are trying to close transactions in tough environments where your lenders might cut proceeds on you. You know, there's been times where we have done uh, deals and it gets to the investment committee and terms change and now you're kind of stuck. Your earnest money is hard and it's your foot is to the fire, right? But it's good to have options as a real estate investor. And I think having that option can provide a ton of value to people who are getting into the game or looking to increase, um, you know, their transaction volume. Yeah, I know that's a great example. Sometimes loan proceeds will get cut. And then so they're going to say, hey, remember, we're going to lend you 15 million. Our boss said 12. So now you got to go scramble and find three extra million bucks. uh, And you have seven days. I've also seen uh, lenders say, hey, your rate lock is expiring. Rates are going to go up. If you don't close by March 31, we're going to increase your interest rates by two percentage points, right, which is going to be a huge impact on the returns. So it's really worth it to close March 31 instead of, you know, April 1. It actually makes a huge difference, even though it only feels like a one-day delay. Yeah, makes sense. I know you talked about the life insurance side of things, and you've had experience in life insurance sales. And I've seen your post on LinkedIn talk about life insurance, and I've always been intrigued about talking to you about life insurance. You know, we have different policies, but for our audience who are interested in getting life insurance policies, maybe to fuel some of the investments that they want to make in real estate or just create generational wealth. Can you share a little bit about the life insurance options that are out there and maybe how that has helped you be a key principle? And maybe some of our listeners are, you know, have insurance policies and did not know that that was an option for them. Can you elaborate on that? A little bit. Yeah, absolutely. No, that. thank you so much for that question. So just to back it up for folks that aren't super familiar with insurance. So there's two types of insurance. One is term insurance and one is um, permanent insurance. Term insurance is like a rental. You rent it for a period of time and then it's gone. Permanent insurance is kind of like owning a house. Uh, you might actually die in this house. So term insurance, uh, that's what the Susie Ormonds and the Dave Ramseys always talk about. They say buy term because it doesn't cost that much money and then invest the difference. However, 99% of Americans uh, do not do that. They'll buy term and spend the difference. So it's, it's not a viable strategy uh, in this type of society or really most societies. I mean, if the money's available, it's most likely going to get spent or invested somewhere. And then what we have are permanent policies, which stay with you essentially in, in theory until you die. And in which case, the probability of collection on the death benefit becomes 100% because uh, we know that you're going to die. And we generally know that the insurance company, unless they had some sort of weird bankruptcy or something, they're going to pay out the death benefit. So now for the statistics nerds out there, what that really does is it's moved your expected value of collecting on the insurance policy from, you know, in a normal term policy, just generally large numbers generally about 8% of people will die before their term is up. So that basically means uh, 92% of people have subsidized the 8% of people that had the misfortune of dying earlier than expected. And the insurance company doesn't know which eight people will die earlier than anticipated. They just know that over a large population or sample size, eight people will die early and 92 won't. So 92 uh, subsidize eight. 
And then insurance companies can still make money doing that business. And that's why term insurance doesn't cost that much because there's not that many people dying before their term is up. So, you know, you're going from an 8% chance of collecting on the policy to a 100% chance. So your expected value has moved up dramatically. So I like permanent policies because I don't really want to rent something. I want to own it. And then the way that permanent life insurance policies work is they have a loan feature. So you can borrow money from the life insurance company directly if you want. Or like what I do is I pledge my policies to a bank and they issue me a line of credit against it. The reason I do that is banks are usually offer cheaper rates of interest than borrowing from the life insurance policy. So that's kind of what I do. I have uh, 16 different life insurance policies. 15 of them are whole life. One is a variable universal life. So all of those are, are permanent insurance products. And I also have a disability uh, product. And I also own long-term care as well. So I'm uh, very insured. So what that does is it increases the probability that I will leave a ton of money to my kids from you know 8% or whatever to 100%. So I kind of know that I'm covered on that side, which means that I can be free to maneuver, you know, spend all my money before I'm dead, which I'll never do. I grew up a poor immigrant. I'm never going to spend all my money Um, or, you know, invest it into highly speculative things. And then even if I lose all of that money, I'm still going to leave my kids a ton of money. So I still accomplish that goal. Even better would be if I invested it in the right things and I grew that money. And on top of that, also gave uh, my kids a large death benefit when I'm dead. So a lot of people, when they look at insurance, they think of it as a or. So it's like, I can either invest in real estate or I can buy life insurance. That's a false premise. I don't quite understand why people view it that way. Insurance can be an and. So you can put your money into insurance and then you can borrow it out and then invest in the real estate or whatever you're going to do anyways. Wow, that's pretty amazing there. So you've been able to leverage your insurance policies to essentially become a KP on opportunities just by having lines of credit or access to capital to do that, specifically maybe in the gap funding space as well, because those are short-term opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, cash on top of life insurance. Uh, With the way with life insurance, the way it works is you can't just say, hey, I'm going to dump in $5 million today. You could, there's ways that you could, but you're not going to get the optimum policy that way. So you fund life insurance over a period of time. So what I've done is I've maxed out the number of insurance policies and the amount of insurance I can buy. Not quite the number of policies. I've, I've really maxed out the total amount that I'm able to purchase. So what I do is I have a line of credit against it. So I use my cash first to invest in deals. And then if I don't have enough cash, then I can borrow against my policies and then use that money to invest. And then once I get paid back, I can use that money to then pay down my line of credit and it's available again. So it's a way of really optimizing cash. And I know, you know, we're recording this in April of 2023. The last kind of 12 months have been a little funky in terms of short-term interest rates going up so quickly. So generally before the Fed started raising rates, rates were really, really low. I mean, you know, I would, you know, I subscribe to all kinds of personal finance blogs because because I'm a nerd and I love to save money. And, you know, like the best online savings account was yielding like 2%. Now you can get almost 4.5, even 5% in online savings. But before that, it was really, really difficult to get a decent yield on your cash. So having my money and life insurance policies yielded significantly more dividends than uh, cash uh, would pay me. 
So that was a really good way of optimizing my cash management. So I would never have too much cash sitting at the bank earning very low. You know, it would either be used in deals where I'd make, you know, 18 to whatever percent, hopefully if, if they paid off. And then uh, I, you know, I was borrowing from my bank at 3% per year, which is stupidly low. Yeah. That was their floor rate. So they basically wrote in their loan documents. We don't really care what prime is. This is the this is the lowest amount of interest we can charge before we actually lose money by having people work on this file and generate all these documents. That's a very, very uh, creative strategy that I think a lot of our, our listeners today should definitely take a look at when they're thinking about life insurance policies and, and talk to you know their their insurance brokers, see if that's a good option for them. Yeah, or just call me. I mean, uh, uh, we're licensed in many states across the country, and it's not that hard. I have two friends uh, who I met through real estate multifamily. They both live in Hawaii, so I got licensed in Hawaii to do their deal. It sounds amazing. Okay, so Ethan, this has been a, a great opportunity for us to talk about your experience and being a key principal, your real estate experience, guaranteeing loans, life insurance policies. You know, how can our listeners follow up with you on, you know, maybe key principal opportunities, gap funding, or your, you know, life insurance sales business for them to get kickstarted in that space? Yeah, absolutely. So my email address is Ethan Gow, just my name at gmail.com. I was the first guy with this name that got the address. So great for me. I was first. Um, so it's E-T-H-A-N-G-A-O at gmail.com. I check my email all the time. I respond uh, it'll be rare if you don't get a response within 24 hours and, and really rare if you don't get a response within eight hours. Um, and then I'm relatively active on LinkedIn. So a lot of people like today was was my birthday. So I had 100 people click uh, happy birthday, uh, half of whom I don't actually even know if I've even talked to them, to be honest with you. But I responded to every single message with thanks. Uh, and then some of the people I responded with, hey, thanks. How are you doing? And then some of them I responded with, hey, thanks. Didn't we talk about this thing last time? How did that go? So that's just my personality. I basically get back to everything. That's amazing. Well, happy birthday. Thank you so much. I sent over 100 LinkedIn messages back today. <laughs> and I appreciated it. I mean, uh, it's it's great that people were willing to. I mean, I know it's algorithmic. It just shows who. And then you can just click or you might have, they might have accidentally dialed and said, yes, they didn't actually want to talk to me. But I still appreciate everybody regardless. Absolutely. Well, happy birthday to you. And uh, thanks again for being a guest on our show. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Ethan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.